0: Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. The Diamond Sutra, Chapter 14. By the force of this Dharma, the venerable Subhuti was moved to tears. Wiping his eyes, he said to the Buddha, how remarkable Bhagavan, how most remarkable Sugata is this Dharma teaching that the Bhagavan speaks for the benefit of those beings who seek the foremost of paths, for the benefit of those who seek the best of paths and from which my own awareness is born. Bhagavan, I have never heard such a teaching as this. They shall be the most remarkably blessed of Bodhisattvas, Bhagavan, who hear what is said in this sutra and give birth to a perception of its truth. And how so? Bhagavan, a perception of its truth is no perception of its truth. Thus does the Tathagata speak of a perception of its truth as a perception of its truth. Hearing such a Dharma teaching as this, Bhagavan, it is not remarkable that I should trust and believe it. But in the future, Bhagavan, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma ending age, Bhagavan, those beings who grasp this Dharma teaching and memorize it, recite it, master it, and explain it in detail to others, they shall be most remarkably blessed. Moreover, Bhagavan, they shall not create the perception of a self, nor shall they create the perception of a being, the perception of a life, or the perception of a soul. They shall create neither a perception nor no perception. And why not? Bhagavan, the perception of a self is no perception. And the perception of a being, a life, or a soul is also no perception. And why not? because Buddhas and Bhagavans are free of all perceptions. This having been said, the Buddha told the venerable Subhuti, so it is Subhuti, so it is. Those beings shall be most remarkably blessed Subhuti, who are not alarmed, not frightened, and not distressed by what is said in this Sutra. And how so, Subhuti, what the Tathagata proclaims as the best of perfections is in truth, no perfection. Moreover, Subhuti, what the Tathagata proclaims as the best of perceptions is also proclaimed by countless Buddhas and Bhagavans. Thus is it called the best of perceptions. So too, Subhuti, is the Tathagata's perfection of forbearance, no perfection? And how so, Subhuti, when King Kali cut off my limbs, my ears and nose, and my flesh, at that moment, I had no perception of a self, a being, a life, or a soul. I had neither a perception nor no perception. And why not? At that moment, Subuti, if I had had the perception of a self, at that moment, I would have also had the perception of anger. Or if I had had the perception of a being, the perception of a life, or the perception of a soul, at that moment, I would have had the perception of anger. And how so, Subuti. I recall the 500 lifetimes I was the mendicant Shanti. And during that time, I had no perception of a self, nor did I have the perception of a being, the perception of a life, or the perception of a soul. Therefore, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas should get rid of all perceptions in giving birth to the thought of an unexcelled perfect enlightenment. They should not give birth to a thought attached to a sight, nor should they give birth to a thought attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma. They should not give birth to a thought attached to a dharma, nor should they give birth to a thought attached to no dharma. They should not give birth to a thought attached to anything. And why not? Every attachment is no attachment. Thus, the Tathagata says that bodhisattvas should give gifts without being attached. They should give gifts without being attached to a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma. Moreover, Subhuti, bodhisattvas should practice charity in this manner for the benefit of all beings. And how so? Subuti, the perfection of a being, the perception of a being is no perception. Likewise, all the beings of whom the Tathagata speaks are thus no beings. And how so? Subuti, what the Tathagata says is real. What the Tathagata says is true and is as he says it is, and is not other than as he says it is. But the Tathagata says it's not false. Moreover, Subhuti, in the Dharma realized, taught and reflected on by the Tathagata, there is nothing true and nothing false. Subhuti, imagine a person who enters a dark place and who can't see a thing. He is like a bodhisattva ruled by objects, like someone practicing charity ruled by objects. Now, Subhuti, imagine a person with eyesight at the end of the night when the sun shines forth who can see all manner of things. She is like a Bodhisattva not ruled by objects, like someone practicing charity not ruled by objects. Furthermore, Subhuti, if a noble son or daughter should grasp this Dharma teaching and memorize it, recite it, master it, and explain it in detail to others, the Tathagata will know them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha knowledge. And the Tathagata will see them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha vision. The Tathagata will be aware of them, Subhuti, for all such beings produce and obtain an immeasurable, infinite body of merit. Good afternoon. On this day, I believe it is number three of the Nyogen Senzaki Session, the Daibosatsu Zendo. And in the many homes zendos of everyone who joins this session, that is without a specific place to be bound, that is as boundless as the text I just read, I read. It's a long chapter, chapter 14 of the Diamond Sutra. And most of us are very familiar with the translation that we recite uh, at Daibusatsu Zendo and the other Zendos in this tradition uh, that we have in this Green Sutra book, where we have the wonderful opportunity to have Buddha, the world honored one, and Subhuti impersonated, embodied in voice and action by readers. The translation that I read today is the one of Bill Porter, Red Pine. I made a few changes in the end to pay attention that we are not a single gender enterprise and that Buddhism includes all he's, all she's, all they's, all beings, which at times doesn't find its way into these printed texts. So you might ask yourself why, why would we talk about sutras in This tradition that is outside of scripture, this separate transmission outside scriptures and words, and isn't that the central portion of what makes out Zen? Well, it would be saying that we are not interested in anybody's expression of their humanity, of their awakening, of their becoming aware of that, what frees us of liberation. And in this case, it's the expression of the liberation of the compilers of the sutras. Was it the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, Siddhartha? I don't know. But it doesn't matter. because. It is an expression of that person's or that group of person's experience put in words. And we meet it as such. We meet it as a hint, one of those many, many different manifestations of truth that finds its expression under specific circumstances. So that's why we look at sutras. It's also interesting to look, I don't know if you have ever examined the character, the Chinese character for sutra, kyo, as it is pronounced in the Japanese language. You know, characters consist out of different parts sometimes. If it's not a simple character, you have different parts. Uh, One of them is the most important part, which is called the radical. Comes from radix, the root of the character. And for the character kyo, the root actually is the character that means thread. Thread, like a thread in a garment or like the famous red thread that runs through history. The red thread of this intransmissible magic, secret, mystery of life and consciousness. So thread is the radical. The other two parts that we find on the right-hand side of the uh, of the character, they are, on the top it says, again, and on the bottom it has the ground, the earth. So this... Grounding us through the red thread, through the thread of expressions of awakened beings, of awakened fellow human beings, past, present, or maybe even future, is what Sutra in this character brings to an expression. But what about Toksan, for example? Yeah. Yeah. What about Toksan? We all know Toksan, the Chinese master, was very indignant. He studied the Diamond Sutra very, very deeply and wrote a lot of commentary on the Diamond Sutra. He was indignant of the Zen tradition. How could anyone claim to have a transmission outside of these wonderful scriptures? And besides that, he had. Given commentaries himself, and his tongue was sharp. He decided to go to the south of China in order to exterminate. Let me show those people who claim to have this special transmission outside of scriptures. We all probably have heard the story on his way. He had to stop. And He was hungry. He needed some kind of refreshment. And so at this place, going to Reishu, he talked to an old woman who sold snacks, refreshments. And the word for it is tenjin. The old woman said to him, "Hmm, Venerable monk, what is that big bundle of books that you're carrying under your arm there? And Toksan said, very proud, that she noticed. These are notes and commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. The old woman very calmly said, Ah, you know, it is said in the sutra that the past mind is unattainable. The present mind is unattainable, and future mind is unattainable, unattainable or cannot be grasped. Which mind, venerable monk, are you going to refresh? Light up is the real translation of the characters. So which of these minds, the present, the past or the future mind, all of these minds that are ungraspable, which one will you use to be refreshed? And of course, Toksan, although he was a great scholar, was dumbfounded. He could not speak. He could not say anything. And took off. So, what we know about Toksan, what happened after that later, he went to study with Zen teachers, of course, because he got more and more into the realization that what is written and the commentaries, that they are not as what he took them for in the beginning. And here, another very famous story, of course, is when Toksan and Ryutan came together and talked about it for a long time. It got late and later, and it was already night when Toksan was going to leave. He was going to leave. He opened the door and, oh, oh, it is dark outside already. Ryutan picked up a candle and lit it. And he handed it to Toksan. Toksan was just about to take the candle when Ryutan just blew out the flame. At this, Toksan awakened. Later, after having received some praise from Ryutan in one of his talks, Toksan took his books out in front of the place where he studied. He took the notes and commentaries on the Diamond Sutra, held up a burning torch, set them on fire and said, even though one masters various profound philosophies, it is like placing a single strand of hair in the great sky. Even if one gains all the essential knowledge in the world, It is like throwing a drop of water into a deep ravine. Taking up his notes and commentaries, he burned them all. He left with gratitude. So even though we have this, we can learn from Toksan's expression how to relate to the sutras. There is nothing wrong with a strand of hair held against this vast sky. Many of us still have hair, and hairdressers are very popular for those with hair. So looking at the hair as an expression of our personal, individual circumstances of life and the need to express it in a specific way, we can see that sutras have their places. So let's go and look a little bit at this chapter 14. And it's, we, will, we won't make it to the end of the chapter. That's okay. But when the time comes, we will stop. So don't fear. What I really love about this chapter 14 happens right in the beginning. By the force of this dharma, the venerable Subhuti was moved to tears. Wiping his eyes, he said to the Buddha, how remarkable Bhagavan, how most remarkable Sugata is this dharma teaching that the Bhagavan speaks for the benefit of those beings who seek the foremost of paths, for the benefit of those who seek the best of paths, and from which my own awareness is born. I don't know if you have ever seen that frontispiece, the depiction of Shakyamuni Buddha sitting and 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 uh, talking to the assembly with Subhuti uh, there. That is in the Donghua Caves manuscript, which is the oldest printed version of a book uh, in. In the world, and let's see if that is. See, there's the Buddha, and Subhuti sits there. He's an old, old person, really wrinkly, had his life for a long time, and listening to this, what does he do? He is moved to tears. We do not hear a lot about tears in the Zen tradition. Usually koans end with the person was awakened. I can't recall any koan that ends with, and the monk broke out in tears. But here... By the force of this dharma, the venerable subhuti was moved to tears. And it reminds me of a very, very important lesson that we learn as we continue this path of the bodhisattva, as it is expressed in the Zen tradition. Zen is certainly a wisdom tradition. A wisdom tradition and In my own history, going back to when I was much younger, I felt attracted by it because of the wisdom, the clarity. There's nothing that clouds this clear, diamond clear, unadulterated wisdom. But over time we learn that that wisdom that is removed from our human experience at times is not just enough. Think of Haku in Kaku Zenji in his Zazenwa How does it begin? Shūjō <laughs> honarai hōtoke nari mizu to kori no gotoku nite mizu wa naku shūjō no hokani hōtoke Sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhas. It is like ice and water. Apart from water, no eyes can exist. Outside sentient beings, where do we find the Buddhas? When we cultivate wisdom, we have to be very attentive. And it's a process of just maturation that helps us with this. We have to be very attentive that we don't build it up wisdom as this huge block of clear ice that is brilliant in the sunlight of the Dharma. It might even be a prism that breaks up that light into these wonderful colors of the rainbow, but it can be cold. It can be cold. It was attractive, I have to say, in the beginning as a young practitioner to think and to feel, oh, yeah, this is just a human emotion you are expressing here. And the universe doesn't care about humans. It just works. That is a very clear recognition of wisdom, but it is not enough. Water and ice. What we develop over time in this tradition and what we have to develop is the warmth of compassion that helps us to melt this ice and turn it into water so that it can stream down the sides of the mountains, of the glaciers, gather in little brooks, in streams, in rivers, and go to the ocean and bring rain, bring the sustenance to the human portion, the human world in which we as human beings live. And Subhuti realized this when hearing the Dharma that is being taught in the Diamond Sutra. The wisdom that a mountain is not a mountain. We just call it a mountain. Or as it is expressed here, as we can see and will see in the upcoming paragraphs of this sutra. Water and ice. Introducing the dynamic element of melting, of crystallizing over and over, back and forth. It says also here in the first paragraph, and that can be almost dangerous to read that about the foremost of paths, for the benefit of those who seek the best of paths. We are very aware in these times That there are way too many groups who claim that their path is the only path. This is the foremost path. And we don't even have to go to groups. Have you caught yourself thinking or feeling, I know how to do it. My way is the best way. So, if we take the sutra, the thread, as a rope that we follow, then there's really not too much of a path left. We just follow it. But if we take the path as the Chinese concept of Tao, of the path of the unfolding of this activity of Dharma, then it takes on a completely different meaning. It's not the description of a path, but it is the activity of walking, following a vow, following an intention. The Shinjin Mei on Believing in Faith of Sosan Ganchi Zenji also speaks about that path. One of the translations goes like this. The highest path is not difficult, merely beyond picking and choosing. There are many ways to interpret, to elucidate this saying of Sosanganchi. And one of them that I want to point out today is not the most common one. The most common one is do not have preferences and you will be not having trouble picking and choosing beyond rejection and acceptance. I'd like to point at it and examine it from the point of view of the Tao, the path, the unfolding, the revealing of this activity of dharma, of life that always happens. And it happens. My teacher, my ordination teacher always said, ishi without will and desire. It's difficult to understand that at first, but over time, I have to come to appreciate it from almost a scientific point of view. Let's look at a parallel expression in science. We all know about our famous physicist, I think it was Sir Isaac Newton, under the tree, having, seeing the apple drop, gravity, gravity. I believe everybody, who is listening today is familiar with gravity, yeah? Sometimes gravity interacts with us, or we interact with gravity in a way that we don't like, especially when we fall onto our face. But it is gravity that keeps us on the surface of this very planet. This world we live, we don't have any doubt that when we lift something and we let it drop, that it will drop. We are very familiar with it. We are so familiar with it that it took a long time in humanity before science began to describe it. A formula, a concept of how gravity works was created in parallel to this sutra we could call it the gravity sutra the formula itself nobody would go and point at that formula and say this is gravity maybe somebody would but then we would have to say nay nay this is not gravity you know what gravity is There's really nothing that can express it but gravity itself. Everything else is about gravity, on gravity, description of gravity, expression of the experience of gravity. When you fall on your face and you get up again, then you can give an account of how gravity worked. But still, in the end, your account will not be gravity. So this path works without will and desire. It does not pick and choose. We are not falling on our faces because the universe has it out for us. Nor will something fall into our lap because we are being rewarded by the universe. It just works. Just works. It took me a long time, but in the end, I came to this very, very deep feeling of trust in it that comes with also the feeling of comfort. not for, not against, just thus, just thus. It takes this self-centered idea of being affirmed by something wonderful or being negated by something that is not wonderful and allows us to let that self that creates the distance here, the picking and choosing, fall by the wayside on that very path. Bhagavan, I have never heard such a teaching as this. They shall be the most remarkably blessed of Bodhisattvas, Bhagavan, who hear what is said in this sutra and give birth to a perception of its truth. And how so? Bhagavan, a perception of its truth is no perception of its truth. Thus does the Tathagata speak of a perception of its truth as a perception of its truth. We have heard this formula if we read the Diamond Sutra, if we listen to it very often. And one way to explore it. is to look at it from where is the stress, which is the word, since we are dealing with words, that has more weight in the sentence. A perception of truth is no perception of its truth. Thus, does the Tathagata speak of a perception of its truth as a perception of truth? The expression, and please relate that back to what we just heard about gravity. The perception of gravity is not gravity. It's only a perception of gravity, pointing to the very fact that we cannot say anything that is not already apart from the suchness. no-self, muga, the expression of shunyata, of the no-fixation, is the expression of this Diamond Sutra. And all the statements, this is not this, it is only called this, point to that shunyata and let me just remind ourselves all here that Shunyata is not emptiness as a substance or as yet another godlike, absolute background on which all of this happens. Shunyata is an aspect of everything that happens. And it says that there is no inherent selfhood, no thingness, no, as it's said here then, with personality, soul, ego, entity in it. A table is not a table. A teacup is not a teacup. It's an event. All the minerals in that teacup come from who knows where. They are put together and fired and glazed. And after having a human being form it into a shape that it can hold the tea. And we call it a teacup. And what the Diamond sutra warns us about is, well, it's from the human point of view, of course, it is a teacup. But ultimately it's just an event. Kick is an idea. The event of this is indescribable and it is fluid. Should I drop it? And it breaks into pieces. From the human point of view, we could say, oh, it is broken. But from the point of view of the universe and the always changing nature of phenomena, it just has changed as an event. What has been broken since it fell is our idea. And it is broken by the fact that it does not align with what is. When we hear about shunyata, it is important to take the next step, which Zen practice teaches us so. How shall we say? It teaches us in everything we can do in formal Zen practice, namely the shunyata of shunyata, the emptiness of emptiness which again is just another pointer that do not attach to an idea of emptiness. The moment we think about, oh yes, this is not a teacup, it is really just an event. Emptiness is a concept. The true emptiness of emptiness, the shunyata of shunyata, can only be accessed in the same way that we interact with gravity. Subhuti continues. Hearing such a Dharma teaching as this, Bhagavan, it is not remarkable that I should trust and believe it. But in the future, Bhagavan, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma ending age, Bhagavan, Those beings who grasp this dharma teaching and memorize it, recite it, master it, and explain it in detail to others, they shall be most remarkably blessed. Well, what is that final period? We we hear it every time we read the Diamond Sutra, but let's have a quick look at these periods that are being talked about here. The Japanese word for that final period is called mappo. Mappo. The age of degeneration of the Buddha's law, of the Buddha's teaching, which some and most believe is the current age of human history. What is also One of the very important things to know about Mappo, of that declining of the Buddha's law, is that it is thought that in this time of Mappo, human beings have lost the ability to come to awakening through their own efforts, Historically, this is very interesting, because the Heian period, which was like 794 until 85 in Japan, in the end, people started to calculate, when would this last period of the Dharma declining commence? Has it started? Are we in it? And they ended up, Putting it in the year 1052. It seems that this arbitrary date would not have much influence on the history of Japanese culture and Buddhism in Japan, but it is quite the opposite. If you know a little bit about the Japanese history of Buddhism in the following, the, the Kamakura period, suddenly new flavors of Buddhism came into existence in Japan. They existed before as streams, pure land Buddhism, certainly, but they became extremely popular. And the reason for it is that the belief that, okay, we have lost the ability through our own efforts, which is called jiriki, jiriki, self-effort, self-power to awaken has gone away. And we have to find other practices and engage in these practices in order to ask for an outside power to help us to awaken or to reach that pure land, the other shore, tariki, Tariki, other force. So in that time, a number of very influential Buddhist uh, denominations came into existence. Masters like Shinran Shonin or Nichiren founded and reformed schools. So the Jodo Shu, the Jodo Shinshu, or the Nichiren Shu. Those types of Buddhisms engage and they came into engaging with great effort in Nenbutsu, the reciting of specific phrases. Because it was said that with Mappo, we could not awaken by ourselves anymore. So the Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, or nam Myoho Renge Kyo, nam Myoho Renge Kyo from the Nichiren Shu are these practices that came very, very popular at that time. From the point of view of us as Zen practitioners, of course, we know that when we engage in nenbutsu. When we engage in immersion, like we immerse ourselves in the Mu Koan, like we immerse ourselves in our exhalation, in the inhalation, immerse ourselves in our formal practice of Gasho, where we bring together self and other, there is no conflict with Nembutsu with Nenbutsu, and when there is no self, there is no self-power, when there is no other, there is no other power, and for that reason, the Zen school has never really seen Mappo as a limiting factor in the practice that we engage in. So there are three periods in this Buddhist uh, view of the periods of the Dharma. The first one is the period of the true law. Sadharma in Sanskrit. Sadharma. We all know it. In Japanese, it is shobo, true Dharma. Shoboji. New York Zendo. The temple of the true Dharma. Bears the name from this true law, the true teaching. The second age is the age of the copied law, Pratirupa Dharma, or in Japanese, Zobo. And the last one, which we just talked about, is this Mappo, the degeneration of the Buddha's teaching, Paschima Dharma in Sanskrit. There are different ways to look at how long these periods last and when they happen, as we saw just from what I said in 1052, that would be when one of these schools uh, put the beginning of the time of Mappo. But others think about it that Dipankara Buddha was the age of the true law of Shobo, Dipankara Buddha who appears in Chapter 10 of the Diamond Sutra. The lifetime of the historical Buddha of Shakyamuni was the the time of the copied law because he put it down in the sutras. And then after that, there is Mappo. And we live in it. Welcome to this wonderful age of Mappo. Subhuti goes on. Moreover, Bhagavan, they shall not create the perception of a self, nor shall they create the perception of a being, the perception of a life, or the perception of a soul. They shall create neither perception nor no perception. And why not? Bhagavan, the perception of a self is no perception, and the perception of a being a life or a soul is also no perception. And why not? Because Buddhas and Bhagavans are free of all perceptions. Perceptions, concepts, idea, beliefs in Zazen, with our alignment with the way expressed in whatever may be happening, the breath, the birds singing, the woodpeckers pecking, the Han being struck, all perceptions that have ideas, beliefs, and concepts fall away. And the Buddha answers Subhuti now. This having been said, the Buddha told the venerable Subhuti, so it is Subhuti, so it is. Those beings shall be most remarkably blessed, Subhuti, who are not alarmed, not frightened, and not distressed by what is said in this sutra. Why would anyone be frightened by what it says in this sutra? Can you imagine anything that could be frightened? Remember when we first came to this practice? with the dread of sitting down and knowing that we are engaging in something that requires us to step beyond the discomfort and to not listen to that, what actually is frightened in its existence, this idea of who I am, the idea of I am not worthy, or whatever idea it is that we have about ourselves. These ideas are what create that kind of being alarmed and being frightened. It's important to know that and it's important to make the appropriate relationship with that portion of ourselves that becomes alarmed. And again, not rejecting, not affirming, but just completely Embracing, completely embracing. These perfections that the Buddha talks about in the next paragraph, of course, are the six parameters that we all know about. Dana, generosity, sila, ethical or moral behavior, shanti, forbearance or patience, virya, energetic, Dedication and application to the path. Jhana, meditation, immersion, contemplation, and prajna, wisdom. The Buddha talks about forbearance in particular. So too, Subhuti, is the Tathagata's perfection of forbearance no perfection? And how so? Subuti, when King Kali cut off my limbs, my ears and nose and my flesh, at that moment I had no perception of a self, a being, a life or a soul. I had neither perception nor no perception. And why not? At that moment, Subuti, if I had had the perception of a self at that moment, I would have also had the perception of anger. Or if I had had the perception of a being, the perception of a life or the perception of a soul. At that moment, I would have had the perception of anger. And how so? Zubuti, I recall the 500 lifetimes I was the mendicant kshanti. And during that time, I had no perception of a self, nor did I have the perception of a being, the perception of a life, and the perception of a soul. So let's see what kshanti really means. Shanti, forbearance, you have been very patient listening to this exposition of the Diamond Sutra. But what the Buddha tells us here The Raja of Kalinga, that's how it is translated in our green sutra book. It's called here the, the King Kali, cutting off the limbs. And it's a very interesting, a very interesting thing that we will discover over time. What is being talked about here is actually how Often we ourselves manifest that activity of the Raja of Kalinga with ourselves. How has that to do with forbearance and with patience? Forbearance and patience seem to be a temporal thing, but having sat on the cushion for many times. You probably have experienced that that forbearance is not the waiting for something. We have experienced where waiting for something brings us. If the bell doesn't ring when we are in terrible pain, waiting for that bell makes it just so much harder. If that is forbearance, Then, well, that doesn't sound like a perfection at all. That is quite imperfect. But if kshanti or forbearance means that we are actually waiting for nothing, that we are just meeting thusness, this tatata, shinyo, however you want to call it, without any space for any idea, for any judgment, for any preference, rejection, or whatever it may be, or any self, then there is no space for the Raja of Kalinga. But the moment you think of, ah, uh, when will the bell ring? Arr. The Raja of Kalinga is born, already tearing off your limbs more and more, and cutting off this one mind of forbearance, of being with what is into the dismembered parts of a suffering psyche, of identity, of hope that it will end soon, or fear that it won't, and all the various different flavors that we can all experience in a session like this. Chapter 14 goes on for a long time, and we do not have to finish because there is never an end to it anyway. But what we can take from it is that this expression of not getting caught up by ideas, of not making the space, the distance between what is of this activity of unfolding that unfolds without any choice, then we don't even need to remember even four lines of this Diamond Sutra. I had to speak about this recently That's why I wanted to come back to it today. And the interesting point at the end of the exposition, somebody asked, oh, which translation do you prefer? And my answer was, there's only one translation I prefer, and that is the translation into embodiment. We all are embodying this Diamond Sutra whenever we step out of the confines of our cognition, where it doesn't belong. When we step out of the confines of our emotional likes and dislikes, when we have the right Vow and virya, the application to this practice that are like bellows for that fire under this block of wisdom that is much easier to attain than the flame of compassion that melts it into the most delectable water for a world that is thirsty for a world that is parched, for a world that depends on wisdom and compassion. Please take good care of yourselves. Be careful with the diamonds. It's the diamond cutter. May it cut all that ails you into one so that the Raja of Kalinga becomes an infrequent visitor. This has been a Zen study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting Zenstudies.org/ donate. Thank you for listening.